Let me encourage you to take your Bibles now and, um, and turn, please, to Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where we stopped last week, and we're going to begin reading in verse 10 in just a moment. This particular series of messages, really a study of the book of Haggai, we have called Waking Up to God, which aptly describes the experience in, of the people in Haggai's day. By way of review, we have studied several aspects of revival. In this particular account, we have seen how for 16 years the people of God had an assignment and they had not completed the task. They were to rebuild the temple. They had been set free from captivity, which was a prophesied miracle of God. They had been set free. They had this assignment. Uh, they had leadership like Ezra and people like that, and they were to rebuild the temple of God. They, they stopped. They became afraid. They were intimidated from finishing the work, and they, they ceased doing it. And they began to justify their what was disobedience by saying to themselves and one another, well, when we get to a certain place and we're stable enough in our personal finances, when we're stable enough in our personal business, then we'll give attention to these broader things in our community like rebuilding the temple of God. And, and the prophet Haggai, probably an older man, steps into this conversation with a word from God, and this is a series of dated messages. We have the dates of these messages that Haggai gives, and this first message basically was, uh, do you not see that you are experiencing the judgment of God? There's a remedial judgment taking place. You are putting money into a purse that seems to have holes in it. You are you're wanting to harvest, and you're not getting very little for your effort. You are wanting to experience, get to this certain place, and you are never getting to this certain place. And so there's never a convenient time to be obedient to the Lord, according to Haggai. And so these excuses they were saying, it's just not time, it's just not time. He comes back and says, well, is it time for you to live in your nice home while God's house lies in ruins? Well, the consequence of that was that God began to, to come and do a work in the hearts of his people. Literally, the Bible says he stirred up their hearts as they began to obey him. And so you have people turning to God and God doing something inside of them and they are motivated and they begin to rebuild the temple. In the process of this work, they discovered a phenomenon of discouragement. And so last week we talked about how discouragement can crop up whenever you set out to do the work of God. And it's so important to listen to the Lord, to hear his promises that he is with you, that he is guiding you, that he is taking care of you. And that is not a feeling, that is a fact, and you've got to hang on to the promises of God. And we discussed that last week, how the enemy will try to get you to stop, just like he got that group 16 years earlier to stop building the temple, he was going to try to get this new group to stop, and they overcame it. So this next message that we're going to look at tonight is actually the first of two messages that occur on the same day. These are the final messages of the prophet Haggai that are recorded. And, and the title of this evening's message, we're calling this, Keep the Fire Burning, The Secret of Continuous Revival. Now, some 25 years ago, I taught through this book in a church I was pastoring. It was my first pastor and, um, in the early 90s, and I, I taught through this book, and, and I have changed my mind about these verses that we're going to study tonight. 
in terms of what God is saying, what God is doing. Now, there's a lot of controversy. Um, first of all, they're, they're, it's hard to find good commentaries on Haggai to begin with. And so if you pick up a commentary on Haggai and you say, oh, they're going to talk about all of the questions I have about Haggai, the really hard questions, and this passage has, raises more questions, and I'm going to get all the answers with this commentary, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, when you pick up a commentary that doesn't answer the obvious difficulties of a book, I call that a weenie commentary. You don't want to buy that one. And uh, they just wimp out on the tough questions. You want, you want a commentary a teacher that's going to tackle those tough questions, okay? And so you can pick up four commentaries on this section of Scripture and get four different answers to your question. And so I'm going to give you the answer as we read through this. And I'm, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, but I'm going to share with you my understanding of what God is doing in this passage of Scripture. So I want to read uh, verses 10 through 19. If you haven't found Haggai yet, it is third to the last book in the Old Testament. It is the third to the last book in the Old Testament. So if you go to the end, count first book, second book, third book, you'll come to Haggai. So in that sense, it's kind of easy to find if you can find the end of the Old Testament. Or you can go to the table of contents and find a page number. And that's, that's just as easy as well. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. The word of the Lord says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean and now carefully consider from this day forward from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs and there were but 10 when one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word and make it plain. Apply it to our heart. Speak the truth in the deepest part of our inner person. 
Help us to understand it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, 161 years ago, a man named Jeremiah Lanfear went to a, a room upstairs in a church, the North Dutch Church on Fulton Street in New York City, 161 years ago today. Jeremiah Lanfear was hired as a lay evangelist earlier that summer. He felt led to start a prayer meeting for business people in the church that would meet from 12 o'clock noon to 1 in the afternoon. The first day he held it, he had put a few flyers out around the business district. The first day he held it, he waited several minutes before anyone showed up. Six people, six people finally showed up. A week later, 20 people showed up. In early October, and again, this is 161 years ago today, so how far are we from October? Not very far. In early October, 40 people showed up. On October 18th, 1857, there was a major financial collapse in the business sector of the United States. Naturally, this church was right in the heart of that business sector. And so hundreds, then thousands of people began meeting to pray from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock each day in fire stations, police stations, and in churches all over New York City. Within six months, the editor of the newspaper sent out reporters all over town during one of those high noon prayer meetings to count as many people as they could. They counted 10,000 people in prayer. Within six months of that first prayer meeting, on September 23, 1857, there were 10,000 business people a day that were praying in New York City. That great prayer revival spread all over the United States. It spread to Denver, it spread to Portland, Oregon, it spread all over the U.S., it spread across the South. And, and to this day, you'll find some institutions, you'll find some places where they have noonday prayer meetings, or they'll have a prayer meeting called Noonday. The college I went to, which was founded uh, after that period of time, but, but it's an old school, they had Noonday when they had their prayer meeting and devotional time. It was a Noonday meeting. Uh, when I first started in ministry in many southern towns, uh, on Wednesdays at noon, the business area would close on the square from about noon to the rest of the day. They'd go fishing, that sort of thing. When you asked them why they closed on Wednesdays at noon, they couldn't tell you the answer. They had no idea. We've always done it that way. They didn't always do it that way. When you, when you tried to figure out why churches have Wednesday night prayer meetings, why were they gathering on Wednesdays? Why do we do that? Why, why, where did that evolve from? It came out of the 1857 Great Prayer Revival. And this was a revival that had a profound effect on Southern Baptists. It's one of the first ones that we can go and we can see that there were many hundreds and thousands of people that were saved under Southern Baptist ministry. During this Great Prayer Revival, within two years, it's estimated that one million people were saved and were swept into the churches of the young United States. This was right at the eve of the Civil War. And we could say that the Civil War resulted in this particular revival coming to an end. And yet, if you've ever studied the Civil War, particularly in the South or in the Northern camps, evangelism was going full bore in the Army camps, both in the North and in the South. Uh, there was an extreme sensitivity 
to the presence of God in the midst of war. But that, but that revival did peter out. It did stop. Why did it stop? And that's the question that historians and theologians and people ask when they study revival in church history. Why, why we can understand it's a work of God. We can understand something remarkable. But why does it stop? When we first began studying this, we understood that what revival is is simply a word to describe what happens to the people of God in the presence of God. Now, God is everywhere. So why doesn't revival happen all the time? Well, we're not always conscious of the presence of God. Uh, but when we are, when he manifests or causes his presence to become real to us and it affects us, it affects every part of who we are. And so if you've studied historic revival and you read about phenomena, something odd that took place in this revival that didn't take place in this one, and you're looking for a common thread, why, why are there so many different effects, so many different kinds of revival, so many different outcomes to revival? It's because in the presence of God, we are affected in different ways. God has a purpose, and he wants to accomplish his purpose. And so that revival can affect a person naturally, affects them spiritually. There was a campus revival that occurred in 1995 that spread all across the United States. It began at Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. In fact, a whole group of churches in Brown County, Texas, right in the center of Texas. And a young pastor named John A. Vant and a bunch of other pastors have been using Experiencing God different denominations all over that county. That's the only thing they had in common. Revival broke out on the same Sunday morning in that county, spread all over that county, spread to college campuses across the United States. Students went from one campus to another sharing what God had done, spread across seminaries. There are people on the mission field today that can trace their sense of call and God's work in their life to that revival in 1995. But why did it stop? Well, some people would say, well, when school let out in May, it stopped. All right. But there's a lot of other campus revivals that didn't stop when school broke for the summer. So what, what's going on when revival comes down to a stop? Well, there are different reasons, different ways we can explain why it happened. Um, let me mention one thing that, uh, well, there are different reasons why it happens. I think one reason it happens is glory becomes an issue. Our Father is extremely sensitive to His glory. And we can't touch His glory. We can't take credit for what God is doing. We have to be so very careful that when someone tries to praise us for something, that we immediately take that praise and give it to the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you've heard me talk about that. It's, it's important to me. If you come and say, Pastor, that was a great sermon, and you, you try to tell me that, well, yeah, it's, I, you know, you want to know that you did all right, sure, okay, I get it, but, but more often than not, I have to say something to you. Praise the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that to you necessarily for your benefit, although it may affect you to hear me say that. I have to say it for my benefit. Praise the Lord. The glory belongs to God. And uh, if you don't believe that, there's a story in the Acts chapter 12, right between the chapters we studied this morning about someone, a king, who did not give glory to God, and God struck him down. God cares about his glory. So when we start taking credit for things and say, well, look, we had this wonderful experience at our church, our church grew, and so come to our conference and we'll tell you how our church grew. 
you're, you're, you're going to guarantee the death of what God did in that church. So he's sensitive about glory. I believe that um, the enemy uses sin in leadership to kill revival. I can't tell you how many times revival leadership has, been, has fallen morally or been damaged in some way by personal sin. I can't tell you how many leaders in Baptist life have fallen in recent years because of sin. And so uh, that is a caution to all leaders, but especially when revival or something God is doing that's powerful is taking place. We've got to be careful with that. I believe there are times where God has left the house and we keep going through the motions. And no one has the courage to stand up and say, well, yeah, that was a great, maybe a great, set of songs, and that was a great biblical message, but the truth is God was not here. How do we know that? Lives weren't changed. Uh, people aren't being saved. People aren't repenting. People aren't turning away from their sin. People aren't walking into their calling that God has for them, for their life. They're not surrendering to him. And so when God is present, those things happen. Uh, when God is present, depending on how he manifests himself, there are times we can't even stay on our feet. He brings us to our faces. And so, sometimes we find ourselves just going through the motions and we, we maybe have tasted revival in our, our past as an individual. We have tasted something in the presence of God and we keep going through the motions or we keep trying to preserve what was happening and we want to sing the same songs do church the same way because I remember a time when God used that. But we're not prepared to admit that he's not using it anymore. Whenever we begin to depend on the vehicle and the method or the program instead of the power of God, he's not here anymore. He's not manifesting his presence anymore. And so we got to be very careful about being honest and authentic about whether it's something God is doing or whether something man is doing. You say, well, Pastor... I see churches that are doing those programs, and they're growing. I heard Adrian Rogers say recently, well, cemeteries are growing too, but you don't want to be a part of that. Just because something is growing doesn't mean God's in it. And so we want to be careful. There was a revival that took place in Indonesia, and what's interesting is when you study revivals that often you'll see revivals grouped together around the world. And one of the things that's happened over the years as I've studied is I've, I've, I've seen a revival for example, clustered around uh, certain periods of time, like from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. You see revival occurring in the United States. You see the Jesus people movement. You see us baptizing the Southern Baptists, more people in those five years than we ever have before or since. Highest numbers of baptisms, highest percentage of youth and young adults being baptized. Um, there was a revival in Western Canada in the early 70s. There was a revival in Indonesia in the late 60s. And, and out of that revival came a man named Avery Willis. Out of that revival came a man named Jerry Rankin. Uh, Jerry Rankin became president eventually of the International Mission Board. Had very profound encounter with the presence of God during the Indonesian revival. He was a missionary there. Um, Avery Willis, there were so many people being saved during that revival on the mission field that they wanted a way to to adequately disciple and teach and train these new converts. And so he wrote material in the Indonesian languages 
to, to help teach the new converts. And that material became a series of studies now called Master Life in, and is still available. It's still being used. It's not as popular today as it was a number of years ago, but before experiencing God, that was the thing to take if you were serious about growing and you wanted to, to learn how to walk with God. They had to back translate it from the Indonesian language that he was using into English in order to publish it for uh, American consumption, master life. Two million people were saved during that revival in Indonesia. Two million people. Avery Willis retired in Arkansas and um, before he died, I had the opportunity to meet him, get to know him, and um, privileged to call him a friend. We were having dinner one night, and I asked him, I knew he had done his, his doctoral work after the Indonesian revival on the Indonesian revival, studying it, um, looking at it, trying to understand what God was doing and how God worked. And I asked him, I said, well, what brought it to an end? Because when it stopped, it stopped pretty suddenly. I said, what, what ended the Indonesian revival? He said, the pastors did. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, when the revival was at its height, when God was at work, a lay, lay people were leading the way. People in one village would get saved, get excited about Jesus. They would go to the next village and tell the people in that village about Jesus. And then people in that village would go to another village and tell people about Jesus. They weren't worried about whether they were Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterian. They didn't worry about those things. They were just telling people about Jesus. They said, and then the pastors got concerned. And naturally, with a lot of new converts, you have some doctrine that's not right, some doctrine that's not biblical. But they were concerned that it wasn't Baptist doctrine, or it wasn't Presbyterian doctrine, it wasn't Methodist doctrine. And so they began gathering up groups of converts, said, you can't go over there to that meeting. You can't go over and listen to that preacher. You can't go over to that Bible study because they are not us. And he said it just choked and grieved the Spirit of God, just choked off what God was doing. Who was responsible? He said the preachers. I believe there's a caution there, and I think it's very interesting here that if you look at verse 11 of Haggai chapter 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priests, ask the priests concerning the law. This entire message from verse 10 down to verse 19 is addressed to the priests of Israel, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. And so the message that's here is for them. It's not addressed to the people at large. It's addressed to the spiritual leadership, if you will, the pastors of the flock, the ones who are the shepherds. And he's saying to them something very simple, but often missed and easily overlooked. And that's what I want us to go through. So this is the fourth message of the messages that Haggai has been uh, preaching. And this is the first of two that occur on the same day. It's in December 520 B.C. December 520 B.C. And it's, it's a message to the priests and the religious leaders. Now, what's significant about this, if, if I'm correct, and I believe I am, just ask me, in verse 11 it says, now ask the priests concerning the law. What's very interesting is when you come down to verse 15, if he's still speaking to the priests, listen to what he says. 
and now carefully consider from this day forward. He's saying, look, I'm telling you something in verses 10 to 14, and I want you to think about the implications of what I'm telling you. I'm telling you something incredibly important. Revival is occurring. I'm at work in the hearts of the people. I am doing things. I am blessing them. This temple is getting rebuilt. But religious leaders, you've got to think about something. And if you don't hear me, this is Haggai now, if you don't hear me, this is implied, you're going to stop this thing. You're going to kill this thing. You're going to choke this thing off. And so he's deadly serious. Now, in verses 10 to 14, he, he asks a couple of questions of the priests. They're religious scholars. They are of the tribe of Levi. They know the Old Testament Pentateuch or the book of the law, the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They are students of the law of God. They know their history. They're the best educated in the group. And so he comes to them as priests, and he asks two questions, all right? So the first question he asks in verse 12, and it seems like an odd question, but just listen to it. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, now most of them wore robes, right? And so if they were going to run, what did they do? They girded up their loins, right? They, put, they hiked up the, the gown. They, they used the little belt that they had to tie it off so they could run. Well, it also creates folds. You can carry stuff that way. And so he said, if, you, if you're carrying meat, if one carries holy meat, meaning it's been set apart for God, and in that process, it typically became the meat that the priests could eat. So it had been dedicated to God, but it was part of their meal plan. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge of his garment, not the meat, he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Now this is holy substance, holy something, meat in this case. And it's touching your clothes, and if your clothes touch something, do those things become holy? That's what he's saying. What did the priest say? No. No. Then he asks a second question. And by the way, if you want to read more about that, you can jot down Leviticus 6, verse 27. Something that was holy could have an effect on an individual if you directly touched the holy thing. It could have an effect on you if you touch the holy thing. And, um, but this is not that. This is, this is a third-party contact. This is the holy thing touching the clothes and the clothes touching something else. Does it make it holy? No. And Haggai said in verse 13, second question, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. In other words, yes. And they don't have a word for yes in Hebrew, so they just repeat the, the statement. It shall be unclean. It shall be unclean. So, here are two questions, and let me sum it up in this way. Is holiness easily transmitted? No. Is uncleanness or defilement easily transmitted? Yes. Yes. And we know that. I think even if it wasn't taught in the Old Testament, we know that's true. If I take a glass of dirty water 
and I pour clean water into it, are you ready to drink it now? No. All I did was pollute the clean water when I mixed the two. If a child is well, we don't let them play with sick children, do we? Why? The well child's not going to make the sick child well. The well child, if they have contact with the sick child, is likely to catch it. I raised six kids. I caught anything that was sick out there for miles around, you know? And so a well child isn't having any effect on the sick child, but the sick child can make the, the well child sick. If I take a hand that's dirty and I touch a clean wall, do I make it my hands clean? No, I make the wall dirty. And, um, and ultimately in the New Testament, we know this is true. If a sinner gives birth to a, a child, do they give birth to a sinner or to a saint? They give birth to another sinner. Now, they might become a saint later when they trust Jesus, but sinners give birth to sinners. And um, that's why I remember vividly uh, talking to each of my kids when they were born. I, I held them. I said, you've been born once, but you've got to be born again. That wasn't just preacher talk. That was a daddy talk. I wanted to see my kids saved. I wanted to see them come to know the Lord. And I began praying for them um, at that moment. What is he talking about? Well, in verse 14, he sums it up. So is this people. Now, he just said that if somebody touches a dead body, they become ceremonially unclean. And so if that unclean person goes around touching things, he's making everything he touches unclean. He says, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Religious activity, the bringing of offerings, and the going through this religious activity, and they were rebuilding the temple, and man, they were gearing up for a lot of religious activity when that temple was finished. Something is missing if that's all it's about. They're not rebuilding this temple so they can become uber-religious. Something is missing. Now remember, he's talking to the priests. He's talking to the, the people who are experts in the law. And he wants them to understand something, get it real straight, get it real clear, that religious activity is enough. These people, when the temple was lying in ruins, scholars believe this is describing a practice of they would still bring their offerings to the ruins of the temple. And Haggai is saying, as a voice for the Lord, it's still unclean. It was still unclean. And so something is missing. Now, if you want to put your finger there, if you want to turn, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 15. We're dealing with the issue of uncleanness and defilement. We're dealing with the issue of religious activity versus the thing that God wants most from you and me. And in Matthew 15, in the earlier verses, Jesus has been giving a blistering correction to the Pharisees. And it's as if this generation of Pharisees did the exact opposite of what Haggai is teaching in Haggai chapter 2, and we'll see this in just a moment. But, but in verse 7 of Matthew 15, he says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, they say the right things, and honor me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. There's your first clue. Now it goes on, and he says in verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And then the disciples said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I don't think Jesus was worried about that, do you? Not at all. But he answered and said, verse 13, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. So Peter spoke up and said to him, explain this parable to us. What you just said, explain it to us. So Jesus said, verse 16, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? He is as plain spoken as he can be. Now, they were all about eating the right foods. And you know that there was, there was legal precedent for being concerned about eating the right foods. And they were all about that. Jesus is saying you can eat the right foods and avoid the wrong foods all you want and still not give God what he wants most from you. And so he says, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So you come back to this passage in Haggai. And, and it's almost as if Jesus is speaking through Haggai, what we just read in Matthew 15. Haggai is saying, look, religious leaders of Israel, we are rebuilding the temple. We need to do that. It's what God wants us to do, and we're going to reestablish everything that we have been told to do. But look, you can do all those things and still miss the heart of God. And so it's possible to have a genuine encounter with God to be saved genuinely, to experience his presence. Maybe not just once, maybe even multiple times as a younger man, an older man, younger woman, older woman, doesn't matter, multiple times. But there's this great danger, and he wants the leaders to understand that this, there's always this danger of becoming a Pharisee, becoming a person that thinks religious activity, man-made rules, human traditions are what we are to maintain to please God. Haggai says, every work of their hands and what they offer to me is unclean. So we come to verse 15. He says, now carefully consider from this day forward. And he kind of recounts the history before the book of Haggai. But he's telling the priest, he said, now based on what I just said, I want you to think very, very carefully. Think, he says, consider this. From before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord... And he talks and he describes a heap of 20 ephahs. You go there, but there's only 10. He's describing that, that remedial judgment that was taking place where they were doing their best to get ahead and no matter how hard they did work to get ahead, they were still falling behind and because they, were on the, they had the wrong agendas. And he says in verse 17, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands and then here's the heart. This is the statement that I think controls the interpretation of verses 10 through 19. Yet you did not turn to me. It's 
verse 18, consider now from this day forward. In other words, think again. And he says, uh, is seed still in the barn, is the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yet yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. In other words, everything has changed. Everything has changed. And they are not in that position anymore. But he said it's not because they've suddenly become religious. They're no longer being judged and experiencing the corrective or remedial activity of God in their life. That's no longer happening. But it is not because they have begun to get religious. It's not because they have embraced all of these laws and rules and behaviors on the outside. It is because what was happening in the beginning was that they did not turn to him, and now they have turned to him. They have repented. And repentance is the foundation of revival. Continuous revival is fueled by continual repentance. You and I can never stop repenting. I'm not talking, when I talk about repentance, I'm not talking about constantly being sorry for your sin. You can be sorry for your sin and not repent. You can be sorry for your sin and not repent. There are a lot of people who are sorry they got in trouble, sorry they messed up, sorry they made mistakes, but they're they're not turning to God yet. They're not turning to the Lord yet. Repentance is a complete about face. Repentance is you've been doing life without God. You've been doing life without his direction. You've been doing life in your own strength, trying to do your best to get ahead like they were trying to do your best to be good enough, bringing the offerings even to the broken slabs of the temple. You've been trying to do all the right things. You've been trying to do all of that stuff. And, and repentance is realizing that I am bankrupt and all of that activity is worthless. And turning away from a life without God, turning away from a life where I'm trying to do everything to please God and make him happy and do all the right stuff, turning away from that kind of life and turning to God and say, God, I am bankrupt. I have no hope but you. I have nothing to bring. My hands are empty. My heart is broken. And if I'm going to have anything good in this life, if I'm going to have anything right, if I'm going to be a person useful to you, if I'm going to ever accomplish anything of any value to you, it's because I'm turning to you, Lord, and I'm putting my trust in you, and I want you to live your life through me. And when revival first starts, that's really not hard to do. There is a stirring of the spirit that we read about. I mean, there is God at work. We sense his presence. It is easy to do. But then come those times of testing, those times of discouragement, those times of of challenge, those times where I fail. And it would be very easy then to get bound up trying to fix it myself, find the solutions myself fix all the problems myself, and ultimately fall flat on my face until I give God what he wants. He says, yet you did not turn to me. That's all he wants. And that turning is repentance. That turning is repentance. Not from what I want, God, what do you want? Not my plan for my life, God, I want to be a part of your plan for my life. What's the next step, Lord? I will walk in faith. I will do whatever you direct me to do. I'm signing up. 
Count me in. And so Haggai's warning to the priest was, don't let the people of God fall into this religious thing. Don't let it be about anything except a relationship with me. All of the offerings are about a relationship with me. All of the rules are about seeking to please me with your life. All of this activity is not just to keep you busy doing religious things. It's about a way of life demonstrating what my righteousness looks like. It's about making me, the invisible God, visible to a watching universe. And boy, when we come to the New Testament, this is crystal clear. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You have this whole new covenant where now it's not all on you to keep all the rules and do all the right things. It really wasn't that way in the Old Testament either, but it's definitely not that way now. Now it's a matter of not doing it by flesh, but doing it by the Spirit, trusting Him. Walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Trust Him to live His life through you and everything God requires of a righteous person, of a righteous life, he will accomplish through you. It won't be your efforts. And it won't be your glory if anything good comes out of your life. It'll be all about him. So he says, priests, shepherds, church leaders, turn to him. And keep turning to him. And as you walk through your day, you walk through your week, you realize you haven't been trusting the Lord, you're not relying on him, turn right then. Turn right then. When you realize you're all bound up trying to fix your problems, solve everything, plan your life, do everything that you think you're necessary in order to have the life that you want to have, and you realize, man, I haven't been fellowshipping with the Lord, I haven't been communing with him, I haven't been spending time alone with him, I haven't shut myself off to be with him, just him and me, he says, when you pray, go into your closet, close the door, where the God who sees in secret can reward you openly. Be alone with me. Seek me. He says, priests, shepherds of Israel, don't let the people fall into that business. When people come to you and say, how does God want me to live? Say to them, go seek his face. Seek his heart. 